In hindsight, while editing this episode, I realized that I got so incredibly excited about the contents of the book that I didn't tell you what the book actually was. So instead, I'm doing that now before the show gets started. Tonight's book is entitled Lemuria, A True Story of a Fake Place by Justin McHenry. I also want to take this moment to give a shout-out to my friend C.J. Wheelwright, who is responsible for the new intro to the show, plus the extra voiceover work for Annie Besant. If you're looking to get a copy of this book, or if you would like to contact C.J. to get your own voiceover work done, I'll have links to both in the show notes. You are listening to the Esoteric Book Club, your source for book reviews, author interviews, and articles on the paranormal, magical, and the strange. Episodes are released on the new moon and full moon and can be streamed from esotericbookclub.org. Here's your host, the bearded weirdo himself, Jason. Welcome back, goblins. I'm your host, Jason, and tonight... Well, tonight, we're talking about lemurs. Yes, the fuzzy little guys with ringed tails and big eyes. The weird part is that we're talking about the role that they play in the New Age community. But first, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. Specifically, Grand Inquisitor Annie Kay, Grand Inquisitor Samantha, and Soul Rising Studios. Your contributions help pay server costs, purchase reading material, and helps fuel my addiction for vintage Ecto Cooler. That stuff is so strong, I feel like I can taste my own thoughts. If you too would like to help out the show, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now, let's get weird. I'm sure many of you out there already know about Atlantis. There's been countless books, numerous movies. Hell, even Disney did a cartoon about it. But have you heard about the sunken continent of Lemuria? What about the lost continent of Mu? That would be spelled with the letters M-U, not Moo like a cow. Much like the continent of Atlantis, Lemuria also sank into the ocean. At least, that's how the story goes. But Lemuria was much, much more than what Atlantis was reported to be. You see, Lemuria had lemurs. It was the cradle of human evolution. It was the origin of human civilization. It helped found the idea of racial superiority, was the conceptual proving ground for spiritual racism, was a talking point for theosophy, the foundation of the New Age movement, the point of first contact with extraterrestrials, more racism, eugenics, reptilians, and eventually QAnon. Yeah, that's a lot. How did we get to this point when we originally started out with lemurs? It all starts in 1864 with a paper published in the Linnaean Society. The author, Philip Lutley Sclater, said, quote, 
The anomalies of the mammal fauna of Madagascar can best be explained by supposing that anterior to the existence of Africa in its present shape, a large continent occupied parts of the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, stretching out towards what is now America to the west and to India and the islands to the east. That this continent was broken up into islands of which some have become amalgamated with the present continent of Africa, and some, possibly, with what is now Asia. And that in Madagascar and the Mascarene Islands, we have existing relics of this great continent, for which, as the original focus of the Sturps Lemurum, I shall propose the name Lemuria. And there you have it. That answers pretty much everything. Thanks for listening, so until next time, remet- Wait, what? You want to know how this connects to QAnon? Oh, well, that that's a little bit more complicated. On a map, Madagascar doesn't look that big. But in reality, it's a fairly large island. Not only that, its closest neighbor is 250 miles away. The big question suddenly becomes, how does Madagascar even have any wildlife on it, let alone terrestrial mammals like the lemur? That very premise is what spurred Sclater on to writing this paper for the Linnaean Society. His answer was basically a fancy version of a land bridge. He proposed that when the ocean levels were lower, there was land exposed, and this land formed a bridge between Madagascar and the mainland. And since this land bridge was responsible for the migration of the ancestor of lemurs coming to Madagascar, Sclater decided to name this land formation Lemuria. This is just one theory as to why there are lemurs on Madagascar. Initially, it was thought that perhaps they had just always been there, basically since the end of the dinosaurs. But, after some paleontological research, it was discovered that the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs basically cleaned Madagascar right off the map. It was essentially a dead zone for a long, long time. The next theory that popped up was, well, maybe... Mankind is responsible for the lemurs. No, turns out that's not real likely either, because frankly, we don't have any archaeological evidence for human habitation on Madagascar before the current era. So if we're throwing out the idea of the land bridge, the idea that they evolved on the island, and we're throwing out the idea that humans are responsible for them, where does that leave us? If you thought the land bridge island of Lemuria was crazy, just wait till you hear the current modern theory. The current theory explaining the presence of lemurs on Madagascar is this. The species that lemurs came from was known for deep hibernation. So at some point, a conspiracy of proto-lemurs were in a deep hibernation within the trunk of a hollow tree. 
there were enough of them in this tree that eventually they could spawn an entire new species. Now, how did this tree get from the mainland to Madagascar? Which, I want to remind you, is 250 miles at the closest point. So scientists believe that there was a giant hurricane. One strong enough that it ripped this tree up out of the ground and blew the debris out to Madagascar. Here's the caveat, though. It had to be strong enough to do that, but also the lemur's hibernation had to be deep enough that they didn't wake up. Yeah. That's the current theory that scientists are going with. Suddenly, the idea of a continental-sized land bridge doesn't sound so far-fetched, does it? A short time later, English naturalist Alfred Russell Wallace proposed that there was really a sunken continent deep within the Indian Ocean, a continent that was otherwise not connected to Africa. So it was kind of Lemuria, but it wasn't. This is where we really start to see this continental drift of this hypothetical land. Before we go any further, I want to make one thing abundantly clear. Lemuria does not, nor has it ever actually existed. Even Sclater didn't actually think this was a physical place. It was a placeholder, a concept. It was a way to describe this hypothetical land bridge that may or may not have even existed. In fact, following its naming, scientists spent a lot of effort trying to disprove its existence. But as we've seen on this show many, many times before, the more attention that you give to something, the more real it becomes. Now, we're not talking real in a literal sense. We're talking real in someone's mind. And in this case, it became real in a lot of people's minds. Let's jump forward in time a little bit to another scientist by the name of Ernst Haeckel. Now, Haeckel used Lemuria as a stand-in for paradise. And that's paradise with a capital P. You know, the Garden of Eden. Now, Haeckel wasn't real clear on where Lemuria actually was. In fact, in the map in his book, he drew a name and a question mark floating around in the Indian Ocean. From this vague reference point on his map, Heckel had the races of man distributing throughout the globe. That phrase should be a red flag for anybody who has an idea of what's coming up. You see, Heckel's Lemuria was Eden. It was paradise. It was the location where apes turned into man. That's why we can't find a missing link fossil, because all the fossils of that time period sank to the bottom of the ocean. Because mankind evolved at different times on Lemuria, their distribution throughout the world created different races. Now, Heckel isn't the first person to talk about different races of man at this time. He just happened to be the best at it. To use a modern term, 
Heckel was a science communicator. He was really good about distributing information. He was a racist Bill Nye the Science Guy. Sorry, Bill. Love your show. In fact, at this time, you could actually find scientists debating and ranking the best races of man in order. I know it sounds like a top 10 meme from the internet, but seriously, this is the type of debate that was going on at the time. It should come as no surprise that these scientists always placed Caucasians at the top of this list. Sure, they always dressed it up in scientific jargon, but when it comes down to it, it's just good old white supremacy. Let's get back to our discussion about Heckel. Now, Heckel was a big proponent of Darwinism. In fact, his translation of An Origin of Species is the reason that Darwinism spread so rapidly in Germany. Unfortunately, he was also a proponent of social Darwinism. Good lord, we're back to racism again. Alright, let's not mince words. Heckel was a brilliant scientist, but he was also really into eugenics. This guy was literally targeting the emerging middle class in Germany. So his books, of course, were going to make them feel good and happy and proud to be upstanding white people. And we all know where that ended up. That's right, the National Socialist Party. Because you know who else loves scientific justification for their racism? Nazis. Now, this isn't part of the book, but I wanted to do a little more digging. Apparently, Heckel was not a Nazi himself. He was actually quite liberal. He was also not anti-Semitic. What's weird is that his books influenced Nazi propaganda. But then, after the Nazis came to power, they started banning books on Darwinism and evolution. And Heckel's books were actually on the list of banned material. Despite all of this, Ernst Heckel's writings on Lemuria are now inextricably entangled with racism. The next person we need to talk about is a man by the name of Ignatius Donnelly. Donnelly was a lawyer, a member of U.S. Congress, a con artist, and a pseudoscientist. Donnelly is best known for writing about Atlantis, not Lemuria. The reason we need to talk about him, though, is because the framework that he created to talk about the, the pseudoscience surrounding the idea of a lost or sunken continent is still used today. Donnelly would use a surface-level understanding of cutting-edge scientific discoveries, piece them together with information that he found or made up, and then he would create this, this overarching narrative, a story about a place that never existed. But the way he assembled the story made it seem like it was plausible. Donnelly may have spent a majority of his time talking about Atlantis, but he did write about Lemuria, briefly. 
Do you remember how I mentioned earlier that every time someone talked about Lemuria, it drifted farther and farther away from Africa and more into the Pacific Ocean? Donnelly was the first person to explicitly place it in the Pacific Ocean. Once again, Lemuria was taking the prominence as a land bridge. Only this time, it was trying to explain why there were similarities between animals in Asia and the Americas. As we move away from Donnelly, the island of Lemuria is going to remove any pretense of being scientific and move entirely into the realm of metaphysics. Now we come to Helena Blavatsky. Anyone familiar with modern esotericism has at least heard of the name Blavatsky. Helena was a turn-of-the-century... mystic. Yeah, we're gonna go with mystic, because really there's no other way to describe her. She drew inspiration from Tibetan Buddhism, Kabbalah, the writings of Pythagoras, Hermeticism, Rosicrucianism, Mesmerism, Eliphas Levi's Transcendental Magic, and even early spiritualism. Today, Blavatsky is held up as a shining example of cultural appropriation. And in all fairness, that's accurate. But she's also responsible for the transmission of information about the East to the West. And it wasn't entirely all about profit. She and her contemporary, Henry Steele Alcott, were actually the first notable Westerners to convert to Buddhism. Obviously, it didn't stick with Blavatsky as much as it did with Alcott, but we'll get to that. Blavatsky specifically credits the teachings of Mahatma Kut Humi, who may or may not have actually existed. Personally, I tend to think that Humi was a character created to synthesize Blavatsky's personal beliefs into a single teaching, making her ideas both more mystical and more palatable. Because let's face it, at this time, it would be far less scandalous if these teachings came from a fictional male guru than it would be to come from a woman. At some point in Blavatsky's search for spiritual mysticism, she met up with a man named Colonel Henry Steele Alcott. Alcott was a reporter, an investigator, Freemason, lawyer, and a veteran of the American Civil War. By all accounts, Alcott was a pretty stand-up guy. They met as a result of their shared interest in spiritualism in post-Civil War America. Eventually, they both traveled to India, where they converted to Buddhism, and later established the Theosophical Society. Here, Alcott served as the president, and Blavatsky served as secretary. From here, things get a little convoluted, so I'm going to try to summarize it as best as I can. Blavatsky met someone by the name of A.P. Sennett, who was fascinated by theosophy, but he also wanted proof of Blavatsky's claims. Senate wanted access to Blavatsky's Ascendant Masters. The Ascendant Masters were hidden mystics who were sharing their knowledge with Blavatsky, allegedly. 
And since these Ascendant Masters didn't actually exist, Blavatsky had to go to some rather unsavory means in order to pull off this charade. According to reports from some of Blavatsky's assistants, she would cause letters from some of her Ascendant Masters to aport and fall into the lap of AP Senate during their meetings. These letters were dropped through the cracks in the ceiling from the floor above them. So through a combination of low light and misdirection, it made it seem like these letters just appeared out of nowhere. Taken out of context, this sounds ridiculous. But you have to remember that Senate was already a believer. He wanted to believe in this stuff, so when he went there and Blavatsky did her little parlor trick, he actually fell for it. He later used this collection of letters that he received from Blavatsky to create his book, Esoteric Buddhism, where he speaks about Lemuria as a symbol of mankind's ascension. Okay, so we're taking Lemuria, and we're removing the racism, and we're bringing it back to spiritual enlightenment. This is a good thing, right? Unfortunately, this didn't last long because Blavatsky later released her book, The Secret Doctrine. Actually, it was two books. It was 1,500 pages and just an enormous tome of a synthesis of all of her beliefs and ideas. And, yeah, we're, we're getting back into the racism. She created this idea of something called root racis. On the surface, it kind of sounds almost like evolution, really. And it does have to do with the creation and evolution of man. But, oh boy, just wait till you hear this. According to Blavatsky, there are seven root races, and they will come about through a series of events. The first root race were ethereal beings, and they were comprised of the Lords of the Moon and the Lords of Flame. Together, they worked to create humanity, but they did so very, very slowly. Their creation was what was known as the second root race, the Hyperboreans, also known as the Boneless. Now, this group started out ethereal, but they slowly grew more dense. Think of them like giant, human-shaped, gaseous blobs. The third root race was formed from a single drop of sweat from the brow of one of the Hyperboreans. The third root race was physical in form, but sexless. In fact, Blavatsky went into great detail about this. This is the group that lived on Lemuria, and over an indeterminate length of time, they eventually mutated to create both male and female members of their race. The fourth root race, well, they were the Atlanteans. And according to Blavatsky, there's a reason their continent sank. The Atlanteans, they were psychic giants with a proclivity for bestiality. Yes, you heard that correctly. According to Blavatsky, that's actually where gorillas and apes came from. 
the Atlanteans having their way with various animals. Apparently, that's also why their society was destroyed. And now, this is where the overt racism comes in. The fifth root race are the Aryans. They are the descendants of the Atlanteans who fled the island before its destruction. They settled around the world, but then some, quote, degenerates settled in other places. Now, what Blavatsky means when she says degenerates are the ancestors of indigenous people from around the globe. Now, the sixth root race, it's not here yet. In fact, Blavatsky says it will arise in America. Supposedly, we are going to combine the best parts of the fourth and fifth root races, but with none of the bestiality. She proposes that America will be the birthplace of a new spiritual being that will lead to the seventh root race. With the inception of the seventh root race, Lemuria will rise once again from beneath the waves. Now there's a bit of confusion when Blavatsky starts talking about Lemuria. She's very careful to let everyone know that it's simultaneously not a real place, but is a real place. And the real place is not the same place that other people are talking about, but she uses the same name because that's what others have called it, even though it's not the same place, they just have the same name. Did you follow that? And if you're going to be talking about races, there will inevitably be racism. Yep, that's right. Blavatsky did not have a favorable opinion of indigenous peoples. Specifically, for some reason, the indigenous people of Australia. Which, come to think of it, I don't know if she ever actually went to Australia. I don't want to get into the details, but just keep in the back of your mind that behind all of this eccentric spirituality, there's a thinly veiled seed of racism. This seed that Blavatsky helped to plant will continue into the 21st century. Moving forward, the direct predecessor to Blavatsky was a woman by the name of Annie Besant. Annie started out as kind of a badass, and then she got mixed up with a guy by the name of C.W. Ledbetter. Just to get this out of the way, Ledbetter was a pedophile who used his job as a personal tutor and his rank in the Theosophical Society to molest many, many young boys. For some unfathomable reason, Annie Besant helped cover up his abuse, enabling him to continue. To this day, no one really knows why she did it. Now that we have that out of the way, let's take a look at how Annie Besant took Blavatsky's crazy train and ran it right off the rails. Like I said earlier, Besant started out as a pretty big badass. She wrote and published a book about birth control, which landed her in court, subsequently getting her convicted and thrown in prison. Now, that prison sentence was overturned due to a technicality, but by this point, she was infamous. She was also an advocate for Irish home rule and a supporter of the free thought movement. 
the free thought movement was basically the belief that one's faith shouldn't be forced upon them by authority or dogma, but instead should be arrived upon by the individual. And then she read Blavatsky's book, The Secret Doctrine. Not only did she join the Theosophical Society, she became Blavatsky's disciple and personal assistant at the London branch. In fact, she was the co-editor of their periodical entitled Lucifer. Upon Blavatsky's death, Besant moved to India. There, she became an advocate for Indian freedom and self-rule, as well as an educator for the Indian youth. She was an absolute superstar in India, until she bungled her response to the Jallianwala Ba massacre. While this lost her the support of the Indian people, it was the impetus for the rise of another advocate, Mahatma Gandhi. This is about the same time that she began working with Ledbetter, and together they were testing out astral projection and other occult experiments, which eventually led to the publication of their book, Thought Forms. This book is still highly regarded today by occultists. Coincidentally, if you think I should review it, let me know on one of the various social media platforms. Eventually, the two co-authored the book, Man, Whence, How, and Whither. If that sounds like a convoluted title, that gives you a very good indication of what the contents are like. What is the best way to describe this book? Imagine Blavatsky's secret doctrine, synthesized, shortened, and then transcribed by Ikea. To give you an idea of what kind of insanity we're talking about, here's my friend CJ doing a dramatic reading from Man. Whence, how, and whither. Mars, at the end of the seventh root race, had a very considerable population to pour into Earth, and these came streaming in for the third root race, to head it until the more advanced eagles from the moon chain should come to take over leadership. Did you catch that? Bassant took everything that Blavatsky wrote and added aliens to it. We get all kinds of craziness with aliens coming from the moon, from Mars, from various other planets, visiting Earth in... in baskets, and using their extraterrestrial egos to manipulate primitive humanity. Let's hear a little bit more of Bassant's mythology. The third round on the Earth much resembled that on Mars, the people being smaller and denser, but from our present standpoint still huge and gorilla-like. The bulk of the basket works from Glove D of the lunar chain arrived on our Earth in the round and led the human evolution. The basket works from Mars fell in behind them, and the whole resembled fairly intelligent gorillas. The animals were very scaly, and even the creatures we must call birds were covered with scales rather than feathers. They all seemed to be made of a job lot of fragments stuck together, half bird, half reptile, and wholly unattractive. Yep, Glove D of the Lunar Chain Basket Works from Mars, bringing dinosaurs to Earth. Seems perfectly reasonable, right? I'll be honest, I can't decipher 
any of what's going on in this book. I also want to point out that anything that Besant wrote doesn't necessarily supplant Blavatsky. It builds on it. It overlaps it. It's the extended universe of theosophy. That's how we end up having things like the seventh root race of Mars fighting the third root race of Earth, all while the fourth root race of Earth, that's the Atlanteans, are, I don't know, fucking dolphins or something. There's all kinds of craziness in this story, including giant black cyclopses, crossbreeding, scaly bird lizard monsters, spontaneous generation of eyeballs, spontaneous loss of eyeballs. It's a whole thing. Besant really seems to have lost the plot later on in life. If that were the end of it, it would have been fine. But no. Other theosophists read Besant's work and just ran with it. Colonel James Churchward wrote a series of books on the lost continent of Mu, in which he went out of his way to not associate it with Lemuria, but people could read between the lines. Mu and Lemuria were one and the same. In fact, Mu, spelled M-U, is literally in the center of the word Lemuria. Churchward did something interesting for his time period. He used actual archaeological evidence to support his weird theories. He also popularized figures who are still in use in New Age circles today, figures such as Uriel and Ramu. And just in case there was any doubt, yes, there is overt racism in this, because Mu was ruled by white people. Why? Simply because they were white. Yeah, there's not really any other justification. With all of the theosophical writings, the continent of Lemuria is still somewhere located in the Pacific Ocean. But then came the book A Dweller on Two Planets that refocused everything on Mount Shasta in California. A Dweller on Two Planets is a channeled text given to the author by a disembodied entity known only as Phylos. This story is as strange as anything you would read from Blavatsky or Basant. Essentially, there's an American Civil War veteran who meets a Chinese immigrant who teaches him mystical Christianity and eventually leads him to California where he enters secret tunnels within Mount Shasta. He later merges with the spirit of an Atlantean alien and is then astrally projected to the planet Venus where he receives instruction from the Ascended Masters. And none of this, so far, has to do with Lemuria. Next, we jump to the ancient mystical order of Rosa Crucius, also known as Amorc, also known as the Rosicrucians. The Rosicrucians were an occult secret society that may or may not have been real, but then became real because people emulated their theoretical society, thus making it real, but it wasn't real. It's complicated. 
Anyway, we're talking about the American order known as AMORC. Now, this group used mass market publication to its full advantage. They received a lot of criticism for teaching occult mysteries through correspondence courses rather than face to face lessons. But it worked. And it worked to great advantage. And the Rosicrucians, they didn't mince words. They outright claimed that Lemurians had a secret base established in Mount Shasta. This was supported by the sightings of Lemurian skyships and the occasional malfunctions on the Lemurian domes, which allowed people to temporarily see them. You may be asking yourself, why are there Lemurians in Mount Shasta? Well, that's because the California coast was once the easternmost part of Lemuria, well before it sank into the ocean. Here's my favorite part. Do you know why we can't find Lemurians on Mount Shasta today? According to Amork, it's because the popularity of their publications caused too many people to go to Mount Shasta looking for them, so the Ascendant Masters had the Lemurians just... leave. They picked up, and they went somewhere else. In short, you can't find them because you're looking for them. Until the early 20th century, anything about Lemuria was still a pretty niche topic. You had to already have heard about it, and if you wanted to find out anything more, you had to go out of your way to find it. But the one thing that really propelled Lemuria into the popular zeitgeist were the pulp magazines of the early 20th century. Specifically, what came to be collectively known as the Shaver Mysteries. Richard Sharp Shaver was not a well man. He was in and out of mental health facilities after the death of his older brother, a brother that he idolized. He experienced frequent hallucinations and paranoia. At this time, the asylums were overcrowded, so anyone who was not a threat to themselves or to others were allowed to stay with relatives. This is how Shaver, when he was supposed to be staying with relatives, disappeared. He simply left. Now, during his travels, Shaver believed that he was being followed by biological robots known as the Darrow. Where did the Darrow come from? I'm glad you asked. They came from the Hollow Earth, obviously. Before we can delve any further into the Shaver mysteries, we have to jump over to a man by the name of Ray Palmer. Ray was the publisher of a pulp magazine known as Amazing Stories. At the time, there really wasn't a specific term for science fiction, but this is essentially what Palmer was publishing. They were stories, based on science, that told a fictional tale. In fact, after Palmer began publishing Shaver's letters to the magazine, he began to get a lot of flack from the other authors, who were frankly angry that the stories didn't have a basis at all in science or reality. Shaver's initial message to Amazing Stories was a convoluted code using the English alphabet, but it came across like the ravings of a drug-addled mind. 
it was a one-for-one comparison stating things like A is for animal, B is to be, C is to see, as with your eyes, and so forth and so forth. Now, Palmer very casually printed this code in one of his magazines, and the readers ran with it. Shaver, for his part, was thrilled to finally have someone listen to him. So he wrote a 10,000-word rant to Palmer. And in response, Palmer expanded that to 30,000 words and presented it under the title, I Remember Lemuria. With this publication, Palmer did a little bit of doublespeak. He presented it as fact by saying, I believe that Shaver believes this. The hardcore sci-fi fans were obviously just furious about this. But, I Remember Lemuria sold a quarter million copies. What really ended the meteoric rise of Amazing Stories was the inception of UFOs. America's attention was now on the unidentified flying object, and Palmer shifted gears entirely. He no longer presented science fiction. He created Fate Magazine. In the latter half of the 20th century, America got caught up in the Age of Aquarius, channeling a bunch of cults, and the New Age movement. So while we imagine that this is the time when the West was introduced to philosophies of the East, it is also a time of victimization. Building off the success of Lemuria, charlatans and would-be cult leaders began to exploit the beliefs of millions of people. And lurking, ever-present in the background, is the shadow of white supremacy. This is when we saw the rise of strange Christian mysticism cults that combined biblical teachings with Lemurian mythology. Many of these cults have led to current-day movements that are still present in our society, including the Law of Attraction, a practice of manifestation powered entirely through the belief that something can and will happen as long as you want it bad enough. But how does all of this lead to QAnon? If you remember, one of the key components of the Shaver Mysteries is the belief in a hollow earth. From within this hollow earth, there is a secret cabal that manipulates world events through political puppets. The easiest way to summarize all of this is to read an actual post from the message board 8kun, which is reprinted in this book. 26,000 years ago, the Cabal was formed with the goal of enslaving the entire planet. The major superpowers at that time on the planet were Atlantis and Lemuria, akin to US and Russia today. So the Cabal engineered a war, man. Since misusing advanced tech for wars isn't exactly going to end well, it culminated in around 11,500 years ago when the Atlantean fleet glassed the Lemurians. They were located either at today's Gobi Desert or in the Pacific, depending on the source, 
but more than likely the Pacific. And the Lemurians, they pulled an asteroid from the belt between Mars and Jupiter, ironically also a remnant of past wars, and smashed it into the Atlantic Ocean. This is why you have things like the Ring of Fire and tectonic plates acting up all the time. This event is described in the Bible as the Great Flood. To end the show, I'm just going to read the conclusion that the author put in the book. He says, Whether Lemuria did or did not exist seems rather beyond the point. Lemuria is not meant to be real or to have actually existed. That would zap the power and the meaning from the place. Lemuria needs to exist in the beyond, out past our ability to comprehend. Otherwise, it's only a highway for ancient lemurs. If you enjoyed the show, leave me a like, post a review, share the episode with a friend, or if you're especially inclined, join me on the Esoteric Archive at patreon.com. Archive members, stick around. You're going to get your own review of a book about pagan rites of passage, written specifically for children. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird. again to open the esoteric archive. Tonight's review is going to be a book entitled Let's Talk About Rites of Passage, Deity, and the Afterlife. Now please forgive me for pronouncing this author's name. It's in Scotch Gaelic. I'm going to do my best. Her name is Shusi Kandach. Fingers crossed that I got that right.